Father God, we thank you for this time. And more than anything this morning, I just want you to speak. I want you to speak, and I want you to give your heart this morning. I pray that there will not be any shame um, in this room this morning, but you, we know, you're a, a, father's, a father that loves your children. So God, speak to us in the way a loving father would, because that's who you are. That is who you are. In your mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Okay. So, once upon a time, there was an explorer that went to visit an isolated tribe. And as he showed up there and was visiting with the native people, he watched a crocodile come out from the river, snatch a young man and pull him into the river and uh, start to drag him away. And so this guy that was watching all of this happen, that he, this man stands up and he's shocked like, wait, what, did you all see that crocodile just grab that guy? He starts to panic, and then he notices that nobody else around him is responding. And after his moment of panic, they look at him and they say, sir, in our culture, it is impolite to talk about crocodiles. And then as he looked around, he notices that people were missing arms and legs, and there were missing family members that had been chomped and maimed and injured and killed over an issue that no one wanted to talk about. So nothing ever changed because in the culture, it's impolite to talk about crocodiles. Which leads me to our topic today, lust and sex. Um, we don't talk about it, but the reality is as much as it is a gift from God, for many of us, our interaction with it has caused pain. And yet it's taboo to discuss the subject, even when the beauties of what sex um, is meant to be is discussed in the scripture. Now, um, some of us have been handed a different picture of sex um, through pornography that is culturally now being introduced to the masses from a very young age. And um, what that presents is so distant from the biblical and the beautiful picture of sexuality. It's an anemic and a pale version of the real and the beautiful and the good. And so Jesus here is gonna talk to us and he's gonna talk to us the way a lot of people kind of expect from scripture. He's gonna lead with some uh, restriction and some prohibition. But, but I, I need you to know that before we start this today, that contextually, Jesus is talking to the people of God. And, and throughout all the scripture story, they were not prude about sex, okay? And, and so they, they just weren't. And, and just to make the point, I'm gonna start, let me, let me read you a passage from the Song of Solomon this morning. Song of Solomon enjoys the gift of sex. And, and there's a moment where a man that you'll see um, at the very beginning is excited to see this girl and he compares um, himself to a gazelle that's leaping towards his beloved. And she sees him as someone riding in on a, on a luxury couch and riding with all these soldiers around to, to arrive on their, their wedding day. And she feels provided for and protected. And so they kind of whisk off together and Song of Solomon leads us up and leads us into the bridal chamber. And so you see, as they get there, the man begins to compliment her from her head, um, beginning with her hair down to her eyes and her nose and her mouth and her neck. And he works um, from the top of her head down, complimenting her and celebrating her. And you get about midway through and he says in Song of Solomon, verse five, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Why does he call her breasts fawns? Because you just don't run up on fawns and you say, hey there, right? Like you don't do that. There's a gentleness to it and a fragility to it. And then he says, until the day breeze and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountains of myrrh and the hills of frankincense. Now, if you want to you know, turn to the map in the back of your Bible, um, you will not find an ancient hill of myrrh or a mountain of frankincense because they don't exist um, topographically. Earlier we read, if you, if you back up in the Song of Solomon, that her little satchel of perfume was couched between her chest. And so when he says, I'm going to the hills of frankincense, he's not talking about a town. And so let's keep on reading. I'm just going to keep on reading. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. 
Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peaks of Amana and from the peaks of Sinir and Hermon, Hermon uh, from the dens of lions and from the mountains of leopards. And he says, let's get away from something that just wants uh, to use and exploit, or in other words, lions that want to devour. And let's go to a private and a secret place with just us. And he says, you know, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride, you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes and with one jewel of your necklace. She, she wasn't his biological sister, if anybody is wondering that. But what he's saying there is we have this familial bond um, of love that's, that's uh, beyond just the erotic. And so yet this familial and, and friendship love of, of, of siblings has grown and it's blossomed into erotic love as they're married. And so he continues to compliment her and he says, how beautiful is your love, my sister and my bride? How much better is your love than wine? And the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Honey and milk are the only two substances um, that you could consume that didn't require death of something. And so he's saying, man, this, this, this invitation and this intimacy with you is nourishing and it's life-giving. It's just pure. It's pure life. And, and then as he continues to travel down um, her body, he gets, he gets towards the bottom and he says, a garden locked is my, is my sister and my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots, presumably her legs, are an orchard of pomegranates with all the choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, um, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the choice spices. It's the best of the best, is what he's saying. And he says that she's a garden fountain, a well of living water flowing from the streams from Lebanon. And then she responds as he compares her body to a garden. And she says, awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits, okay? We go to the next chapter and it says, then the very next verse, he says, I come to my garden, my sister and my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice and I've ate my honeycomb with my honeycomb with my honey and I drank my uh, wine with my milk. Commentators are divided on how long a gap there is between those two verses. Some say three minutes, some say five, some say 15 it's hard to say. Um, but the point I want to make before getting off Song of Solomon is that right after that, a different voice speaks. And it is considered to be the people of God. Re re remember that this is the inspired scripture. And, and this is what they say after this presentation of marital love. And this is what it says. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That's what the Bible says about sex. Drink, my friends, and be drunk with that love. So the Bible, first thing on your notes, celebrates sex. It's not prude. The book of Proverbs says to the man, let your fountains be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, and let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. That is not necessary for the reproductive process, right? That's for enjoyment. But he says earlier, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. And what he's saying there is really what Jesus is talking about when we get to the uh, Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. Uh, you see all throughout the Old Testament, a picture of sexuality that's presented like a garden. This is the picture that is painted all throughout the Old Testament book. It's a walled in garden. And it's a beautiful image. Um, it's this, this garden was very lush and exotic, filled with beautiful flowers and fruit. It was nourishing, it was exciting, it was life-giving, but it was, it was also a walled-in and protected garden. It was secret, it was private, it was protected. And, and so that's how the Bible presents sexuality, that it's life-giving, that it's nourishing, and it's meant to be enjoyed within proper boundary. Don't let the springs, it says, be cast into the streets. 
And so to some degree, everything I'm saying, um, honestly, the vast majority of you statistically agree with, by the way, most of us believe that sex is meant to be fun and enjoyable and meant to be enjoyed also within certain boundary. I mean, we, we set boundaries even at, um, you know, as, as, as uh, a co- uh, a country, even as government of consent, you know, around AIDS and, and different things like that. And so this is, this really so far is nothing new, but Jesus starts with the boundary that it would have been very commonly misunderstood in the culture. And in verse 27, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, this was from the 10 commandments. This was the seventh of the 10 commandments, adultery is having sex with someone other than your spouse, um, which interestingly, I'm gonna quote a lot from a a couple different nationwide surveys about uh, people's relationships in America. And in um, the first survey we're gonna look at, the question was asked, is it sometimes permissible for a married person to have sex with someone other than his or her spouse? 10% of men said yes, 5% of women. So the point is, When America, just at large, when America was asked the question, is it okay for a married person to have sex outside of marriage, 90% of men said, no, it's never okay. 95% of women said no. Even with no religious affiliation, most Americans say that there should be a boundary if you've made a covenant with a person that you don't take sexuality outside of that walled garden. And so I, I'm not gonna belabor verse 27 because most of us are already there. We most, most of us already believe that. 10% of guys don't, so watch out, ladies. Um, but most people do. Uh, where, where Jesus takes us on another level is verse 28. He challenges us by saying, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Um, Theologian John Stott, he points out that what Jesus is doing here um, really is not anything new again. So he's taking the seventh commandment and the 10th commandment, which is don't covet, and he's kind of putting them together. So they they should have really figured this out from the Old Testament as well. Don't, you, you know, don't want something that's not yours and don't commit adultery. He's putting them together. But Jesus is doing this because there was an attempt to sort of narrow the boundaries of what's acceptable sexually where restraints should be. Uh, So Jesus is widening that boundary, um, where that boundary should land beyond just adultery all the way out to lust. And so he paddles upstream, again, we did this last week, and he says, do you wanna see where a lot of the hurt that can come from from sexual misuse, where does it come from? And he said, let's paddle to the top of the stream and look at lustful intent. So let's look at the relationship between your eyes and your heart. And he says, what happens with our actions begins in our imagination. And so where Jesus pushes us is not the activity of adultery in this conversation. What he says, it's, it, he, where he pushes us in this, in this verse is the intent in our imagination. And so lust is the problem is what he's saying. Lust is the problem. And so the Bible has a barrier, this barrier around sexuality. That barrier is within the covenant of marriage. And he says, I promise to love you and to never leave you and to never forsake you. That's that's part of what you say before God and for all the people that are there, right? And in that promise of, of I want all of you, and I, and I wanna care about you for better or for worse in sickness or in health, whatever may come, I want all of you and I want to commit all of me to all of you within that safety. This sexuality is meant to be enjoyed. So that's what the Bible presents. And um, we keep on going, we look at the bar that Jesus sets where he said lustful intent is out of bounds. And for many of us, we look at that and we go, that's just too restrictive. That's just a little too far. Jesus is calling for you know, this end of, of objectification primarily here of women. And, and we like that language for, for, some of, uh, for some of, but some of this is just, if we're honest, it feels a little bit restrictive. Previous generations, in fact, um, just some decades removed in America fought for a sexual revolution, right? And so part of which was, Talk about, you know, go back to the 60s and 70s. Hey, there's some boundaries around 
sexuality that feels stifling. And so we need to knock these walls down and let's actually move beyond those barriers. And so the generation you know, before us wanted to push the boundaries of where sex was acceptable. And so now we are in a place where we can see there's been a radical change in how sexuality is uh, experienced in, in America. So I wanna talk about um, the proliferation primarily first here of sexual imagery, okay? And so Jesus here is talking about what goes through your eyes and then goes into your heart. He's talking about images and imagination. He's talking about the intent of lust. And there's been a big shift in our culture with how we do that. So I wanna talk about the proliferation of it and the problems that it's caused, and then the principles that Jesus gives us, okay? And let me say again, as I do this, my goal is not to shame anybody at all. My goal is just to help us see where we are as a culture, where we wanna be, and how Jesus calls us to live in the world that he made, okay? So let's talk about the proliferation of sexual imagery. And again, I'm using stats. This is uh, from Relationships in America survey, along with a few others. I'll try to quote as we go. But as of today, 84% of 14 to 18-year-old males and 57% of 14 to 18-year-old females have viewed pornography. Almost all boys, young boys, and a little over half of young girls. It has become a common experience of the minor in America to view adults having sex through a screen. And depending on when you check the numbers, uh, pornographic websites land somewhere around three out of the top 20 websites on the globe. And as of earlier this week, number 10 on the most visited list was a pornographic website that gets 3.3 billion users. And, you know, that's, that's more, just, just, to com- just for some comparison, that's more people visiting this explicitly pornographic website than are visiting Netflix, than are visiting Amazon, than are using Zoom, that are on TikTok. So we don't talk about it, but that's the world that we live in. And it's hard to estimate the size of the business of pornography. Where, you know, where do you draw the lines, right? But, but looking at several places, porn roughly generates 97 billion annually around the globe. 12 billion of which comes from the United States. So there has been a massive shift in our usage of imagery and it's going into our hearts. That's what Jesus is talking about. Um, There's been a massive shift to that. And one commentator said, a young man in America today in five minutes can see more naked ladies than his great grandfather could his entire lifetime. And we are not prepared for that shift technologically, it's changed the way that we've even related to each other. So again, statistically, I thought it was helpful. It was a helpful way to ask um, the question, the way that the Relationships in America survey asked, they, they, they said, you know, because how do you say, are you addicted to porn? How do, you, how do you get a real number for that usage? And so the way they get to it is by asking this question, when is the last time you intentionally looked at pornography? 43% of men and 9% of women said this past week. Um, The number of women goes up if you lower the age bracket to women under 40, and the number of men stays roughly the same up into their 60s. 24% of American men indicated that their most recent use was today or yesterday. So 46% of adult men are weekly porn watchers. A quarter of them viewed it yesterday or today. So the thing Jesus is talking about lustful images into your imagination has proliferated to this kind of historic degree in our lifetime. And again, I'm not shaming you because you didn't, you know, make this. Um, You know, you didn't make your phone. You didn't make the technology advancements to, to, to make that happen. You didn't create the environment that has changed so rapidly in our culture. Um, But I'm not helping you as a pastor, if I just ignore it. So I'm trying to help us understand, first of all, kind of the the world that we live in and the reality is there's a proliferation of sexual imagery and there's been a cost to it. There's been a problem to it. So I I just wanna read 
to you some other quotes. It's fascinating. Naomi Wolf, I've, I've mentioned her name before. She's, this is her self-description. It's not mine. She is a self-described liberal feminist who criticizes pornography. And she wrote an article called The Porn Myth in the New York Magazine. And this is what she says. For two decades, I've watched young women experience the continual mission creep of how pornography has lowered the sense of their own sexual value and their actual sexual value. When I came of age in the 70s, it was still pretty cool to be able to offer a young man the actual presence of a naked, willing young woman. You could get a pretty enthusiastic response just by showing up. Well, I'm 40, and mine is the last female generation to experience that sense of sexual confidence and security in what we had to offer. And she continues, the young women who talk to me on the campus about the effects of porn on their intimate lives speak of feeling that they can never measure up, that they can never ask for what they want, and then if they do not offer what pornography offers, they cannot expect to hold on to a guy. Jennifer Lawrence Uh, Many of you know her, um, an Academy Award winner, um, was the victim of having her uh, phone hacked where they took uh, pictures that she had taken of herself, nude pictures that she had taken of herself and that she had sent to her boyfriend. They were spilled out online and uh, she was asked in a Vanity Fair article, why did you do that? She responds, either your boyfriend is going to look at porn or he's going to look at you. That's the assumption that she's working with in her mind. Naomi Wolf uh, speaks to this and she says, does all the sexual imagery in the air mean that sex has been liberated? Or is it the case that the relationship between the multi-billion dollar porn industry compulsiveness and sexual appetite has become like the relationship between agribusiness, processed food, supersized portions, and obesity? You hear what she's saying? She's pointing out that sex has become commodified. It, people have become objects to use rather than people to love. And, our, and she would say, really, what she's saying is we are poor because of it. Sex has become transactional and soulless. So Christopher Ryan, who's the author of Sex at Dawn, he's, he's a proponent of non-monogamy, uh, He was asked by Vanity Fair about the advent of Tinder. If you're not familiar, it's a dating app um, where you vote by swiping on pictures, essentially giving your vote um, if the candidates that you're looking at on the screen are hot or not. Um, And he admits that there can be a problem with what he called sexualized technology. And here's what he meant. This is what he says. It's the same pattern manifested in porn use. The appetite has always been there, but it's been restricted by availability. But with new technologies, the restrictions are being stripped away and you see people sort of going crazy with it. I think the same thing is happening with this unlimited access to sex partners. People are gorging and that's why it's not intimate. You could call it psychosexual obesity. So it's fascinating to me, these two people, that I just quoted are not followers of Jesus. They, they do not have any sort of religious or moral tie to restricting their sexuality. They're just looking at the cultural <laughs> proponents of what's happening now with the sexual ethic and they're saying, hey, what we're doing is not good. It's not been good for women. It's not been good for relationships and it's not been good for men. So there's, there's dozens of scientific studies that have confirmed that regular porn use in a relationship lowers relationship satisfaction, it lowers relationship quality, users tend to experience more negative communication with romantic partners, they commit more infidelity, they tend to see monogamy as unrealistic and they have lower self-esteem. And then here's you know, the, the crazy thing, uh, sociologist Samuel Perry at the University of Oklahoma, he, he noticed that pornography use predated subsequent growth and religious doubt and declining importance of religion. So porn has also encouraged the earlier um, sexual debut within a relationship. And because now rather than sex being the expression of a covenant of love, it's an expectation with the possibility of love on the other side. It's become an anchor to try to win a relationship rather than the expression of love. And so on the other side, the tragedy is 
statistically again, now we're seeing that an earlier sexual debut in a relationship is not a predictor of a strong relationship, but of a weak one. And that more relationships that bring sex into it earlier, they don't survive. And so what you see is that God created sex for bonding. It releases hormones that you know, promote bonding. It's the spiritual and holy act of the two becoming one, right? That's a spiritual thing. And yet when we've pulled it away from covenant, it becomes isolating. It keeps us from a relationship with God and where we wanna be with him and with each other and even with ourselves. That rather than being in bed with someone who's committed to love us through the highs and the lows in life, we're in beds with our phones looking at someone who we don't even know. And it's been painfully isolating for us. So we, we move back to Jesus. And let me quote um, Naomi Wolf one more time. She says this, mostly when I asked about loneliness, a deep, sad silence de- de- descends on the audience of young men and women alike. And they know they're lonely together, even when conjoined. And this imagery is a big part of that loneliness. What they don't know is how to get out, how to find each other again, erotically face to face. Other cultures know this, and this is what she says, I'm not advocating return to the days of hiding female sexuality, but I'm noting that the power and charge of sex are maintained when there's some sacredness to it. When it's not on tap all the time. In many more traditional cultures, it's not prudery that leads into discouraged men from looking at pornography. It is rather because these cultures understand male sexuality and what it takes to keep men and women turned on to each other over time, to help men in particular to, as the Old Testament puts it, this is still her talking, Rejoice with the wife of the youth. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times. These cultures urge men not to look at porn because they know that a powerful erotic bond between parents is a key element of a strong family. This is a self-professed liberal feminist scholar quoting the Old Testament sexual ethic favorably. I want you to think about how wild that is. And you feel it today, where, where in the past, the crowd was all about, you know, sexual liberty, break down the walls, right? Let, let's get it out. Now the call is, we need some restraint. And a lot of, even the Me Too movement is like, hey, we broke down some walls that need to be rebuilt, not to make sex like a toxic, you know, stifling pond, but a river that can flow and give life again. Because the way it's flowing now has meant less dating, and less marriage, and less kids, and less happiness, and less health, and more loneliness. So has our sexual liberty brought us freedom? No, our liberty has brought us bondage, and so we need to change. And here's the interesting thing, as much as technology has advanced it for us, this is not new. Ancient Rome had a much looser sexual ethic, and when you, when you have a more loose Sexual ethic, it tends historically to favor men because they're more interested in sex uh, statistically and it favors powerful men because again, statistically and historically they have the money or the social standing or the influence to get more sex. So whenever you have a more sexually liberated society, it tends to favor powerful men and Rome saw that. And here's the Interesting thing, as, as a result, societies, you know, began to lose, right? Men, women, and children, uh, they began to lose. And so one of the ways Christianity grew so much in ancient Rome, like why, why were people ascribing to Christianity, even though they were getting murdered for believing in who Jesus was and believing in God, it was because they saw the health of their relationships, Their men and their women are happier because they have this fountain and they have this garden, this walled garden that they sneak away to and they come out of this covenant of love, this boundary that isn't restrictive, but it's liberating. And so they saw the sexual ethic of Christians as as kind of backward. They saw it as kind of weird, but they also looked at it and said, that's desirable. And so they were drawn to it. And so now today, if you look at culture, the same kind of Romish antics are among us, right? And they produce Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, R. Kelly's of the world, right? And so you have people like Naomi Wolf going, hey, 
maybe the Bible was onto something. And I, and I think it is. And so when, when Jesus says to you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully is committing adultery in his heart. I remember reading that as a young man. And I'm like, man, Jesus is making this hard, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you look at her, it's like you've already committed adultery and it just felt like so over the top. But now... I read that so differently. It's because Jesus looks upstream and he sees, you know, if you flood the eyes with imagery, they begin to fill our imagination. And what happens downstream is you lose. Men lose, women lose, kids lose, a culture loses. And secular researches of the culture are even saying, hey, where we landed is, there, is not good. Is there another way? And, and there is. And so what Jesus is presenting us is not a restriction, it's a liberty. And he says, we have to be honest about the principle that our eyes inform the heart. And so Job says it this way, I've made a covenant with my, what? With my eyes, not to look lustfully at a woman, right? How then could I gaze at a virgin? If you go um, uh, back a few verses, if, if, I, if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, he would acknowledge then that he deserves judgment. What Job in the Old Testament and Jesus promotes here is that our eyes inform our imagination. So what do you feast on with your eyes? Imagination is a gift from God, right? buildings, architecture, organizations, the creativity of the creator, right, is in us. A million things are created with human imagination. But when we allow that imagination to be filled with distorted imagery, we get distorted imagination. So it's interesting. I remember hearing the story of a recovering sex addict. And he said, when I started restricting the flow of this stuff into my life, the weirdest thing happened. I got my creativity back. He had realized that he had lost it in his addiction. And he said, I used to write and sing and play and bike and, and hang out with friends. And I used to do all this stuff that I really just wasn't doing anymore because the hours were being absorbed. And he said, now I've got myself back. There was a liberty found in restricting the flow of that content. And so now again, I think it's important here to note that Jesus used the words lustful intent, right? I think intent matters. So what I'm not about to do here is to say, so everybody start you know, changing your clothes. We're gonna have hoods and long flowing robes. Everybody should wear that. I'm not like saying all kinds of restrictions externally because human beings are built differently, right? It's about intent. I remember, you know, for me, when I was a youth pastor, I took this very seriously, which is probably why I'm, I'm, I'm kind of comfortable with this subject. As a youth pastor, I did this talk many, many times over two decades, right? Um, I, I took this very seriously because I'm shepherding kids. And so if I looked at a, a, a teenage girl, I thought this is somebody that I'm meant to shepherd. I, I, I never had a little sister, but I, I kind of thought about it that way. How would I want a little sister, if I had one, to be cared for. If I see guys making cat calls and making sexual comments about some girls that are walking by, I, I should get offended, right? I should, how, how dare they? And, and I realize, you know, you know, we're the same, if there's two groups of people and I'm not doing that and somebody else is, you know, same age, looking at the same people, but our intent is totally different, right? And so that matters. It's about what's happening in your heart that you have to be honest with. Now, I'm not presenting myself as pure. Uh, pornography entered into my life before I even fully understood what was going on. I've experienced it as a, a lot of you have, whereas you know, men were designed to respond to naked women. You're meant to do that. And yet the way it was presented, divorced from covenant relationship instantly brings shame. And, and that's maybe the reason I was wrestling with this message the most. Even when I was putting the promotions together, I was like, do I really, do I, do I really need to go over that little, you know, those five verses? Maybe we could just skip over, you know, that part. And I heard myself, I was like, no, we're not going to skip over it. This is scripture. This is what Jesus was talking. And there's a reason he was saying this. 
But the thing I dread about this talk is when, especially in our culture right now, when you talk about sex, it's supposed to be fun. When you talk about sex now, you kind of feel this wave of shame hit the room. And I don't like it. It's not meant to be that way. It's not. That we don't feel good about it in our lives. And and I've lived there. And part of the liberty is finding that there's liberty in the restraint of saying, you know what? I'm going to control what my eyes see because I care about what happens in my heart. And so Jesus gives us our practice that restraint, what it really equals is liberty. It equals freedom. This is what he says next. (laughs) If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better than you lose one of your members than that of that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, is he advocating mutilation? No. There's some people in Christian history that thought so. And, and this is a true thing. The Council of Nicaea had to get up and say, everybody stop doing that. That's a wrong interpretation of the scripture. Notice Jesus says, cut out your right eye if you're going to lust. I, I, love, I love the way John Piper says this. <laughs> he says, you can, if you cut off your right eye, you can just lust with your left eye, right? And then, you know, really, you, you could lust with no eyes, just using your mind's imagination. And so he's not actually talking about, you know, ripping your eye out. You know, what he's saying is you need to get way more radical on keeping this stuff out of your life. And that, that said, remember, sex is not the devil's business. The devil's business is to distort it. And so for me, I realize that sex is good and I don't want to be ashamed of liking it, but I want the distortion of it out of my life because it costs too much and I don't want to play that game anymore. And so what Jesus is saying is a radical mutilation of the parts of my life or a radical mortification of cutting off the moments or if you want to write down opportunities where my eyes have access to material that is affecting my heart. That's what I'm cutting off. I'm cutting off those moments. And again, he says, if here, because you know your heart. There's no hard rules here exactly of what you have to do and exactly where you can go. You know, you can watch movies, but you can't do it after midnight because nothing good happens after midnight. I'm not about to do that. I'm, I'm saying it's about wisdom. And so I had a friend that's going to bars. It's not a problem for him. He wasn't tempted to overindulge in alcohol. And so he didn't struggle with alcohol. And, and so it wasn't a big deal. He could hang out with his friends there. No problem. I've known other people who were so addicted to alcohol that just as soon as they stepped foot inside the door, the smells and the sights and the sound kickstarted all their cravings for alcohol. And so they're, they're like, I just can't go in there anymore. Right? So yeah, though technically going in, stepping inside the, a bar isn't wrong, it's probably not good for you to go there. And so the, the book, Atomic Habits, it changes this language a little bit, um, that it's the cues outside that kickstart the craving. And then we respond to get the reward. And the book speaks of it so it's a, um, palatable to business people. So when you see this external cue, it's kickstart cravings. And then you want to respond to get a reward. That's how we handle food, some of us, right? That's how we handle everything. And he says, one of the easiest ways, if you want to put a restriction in your life that brings liberty, like if you're snacking too much during COVID <laughs> or, you know, is, is, or anything like that, he says, one of the ways to stop the craving is to eliminate the cue. So get it out of your life. Get all the sugar out of your house, right? So when you're like, hmm, this is when I'm normally eating cookies, but there are no cookies. So maybe I'll read a book or write a poem or I'm going to go for a walk. And what happens is your imagination starts to go a different way. So I eliminate the cue to stop the craving because I typically respond and it gives me a reward, but it has a cost on the other side that I don't want to pay anymore. You see that? So Jesus says, get radical about cutting it out. Cut it off. Get it out of your life. Do whatever you have to do. And you have to be honest about where it happens to you. 
One person going to bars, no problem. Others have to be honest with themselves. I can't, I can't do it. I got to cut it out of my life. Will it cost me socially? Yes, maybe so. But it's better to cost me socially than to cost me my life. So I cannot go. And so that same person though, that could go to bars maybe has an addiction to sexual imagery. So he takes steps to cut that out of his life and he takes his computer and his devices and his phone, he puts accountability software in all of it and he builds accountability uh, relationships in his life. Um, But then maybe he notices that as he goes in bookstores, just looking around for books, they have sexual imagery that pulls him in too. And he realizes, I can't go to bookstores. I've had friends, you know, now, now most of you would never thought of that about a bookstore. You're fine, but for him, he just knew, you know, I, for real, I can't go to bookstores. And I've had friends and there's certain parts of town where they can't drive through because that's where they did a lot of the things that they don't want to do anymore. And as soon as they show up there, it's like the cue kicks in the craving and they end up on a road going, how did I end up here again? It starts with being aware of my life and what I allow into it, Right? So Jesus is saying, again, let's just put it a different way. Get radical about the reality that restrictions can bring freedom. Which again, we all know is pragmatically right. We accept that right away with food, right? That we restrict ourselves for freedom. How is Simone Biles able to fly through the air like a bird, right? because someone is measuring all of her salt and all of her sugar intake. (laughs) There's a restriction of her diet to liberate her to go places human beings haven't deemed possible. And some of you, you limit yourself at what you eat so that you can experience physicality, you know, that climb the highest mountain and swim the deepest rivers and all the stuff that you do. You know that restriction brings freedom. And here, Jesus, what he's advocating is not a repressive sexuality, but a restriction that leads to freedom. He says, I'm trying to bless your life. And part of that blessing is putting up some walls around the garden. Let me just say this as we close. And um, I know this isn't fun um, to talk about necessarily, but I think we know that this is the culture that we're in. Um, Donna Freitas um, said it as she did all this research, looking at particularly this young generation. Um, She said, the loneliness and isolation and distortion of the ability to even relate to each other is a form of suffering. That's what it is. It's a form of suffering. And I want better for us. I want better for you. And, And there are some people that go, well, then that's just not really realistic in the world today. And my response to that is, why do I care what the world thinks, right? We're a city on a hill. We're meant to be something different in the way that, you know, that we treat us. So let me tell you the worst thing that we could do with this message, because I don't want any of us to do the worst thing that we could do for those of us that maybe don't wrestle with pornography is go, yeah, those people are sick. 80% of young people, men are gross. That's not helpful. It's not a helpful way to treat people. A lot of us have been really damaged and really hurt by sexuality that was forced on us, presented to us in an early age. Statistically, a lot of us have made a decision willfully and then afterwards wish we hadn't. And the reality is no one comes into this room pristine, right? We all come in broken, but Jesus is a restorer. And so I don't want to end this talk with this being like a wave of shame because that's not what it was for Jesus. When he saw people who had devastated their lives in the myriad of ways, he did not judge, he did not condemn. When he saw that there were sheep that were harassed, helpless and scattered, what he did, he had compassion. He said, I hurt with you, I suffer with you. So nobody's trying to bury you in shame this morning. Jesus came to set us free. So Jesus comes to set us free. Nobody needs to walk out of here feeling shame today. You don't. You really don't. The grace of God is too good for that. So let's go back just to the beginning of of this whole series in the Sermon on the Mount. How did Jesus start? Blessed are the poor 
in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's where it starts. You don't say, well, I, I better get it all together. I better buy some software and I better get you know, rid of my phone and live like a monk and shave my head. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is get to a place where you don't have to act like you've got it all together. You just admit that you're in need. You come poor in spirit. That's where the sermon starts. I admit that I am spiritually bankrupt and I'm sad about it. It hurts my heart. I mourn that. And when you admit I'm poor in spirit and I'm not coming in prideful and acting like I got it all together, I come with meekness. And Jesus says, comfort, the kingdom of heaven and the blessing comes flowing your way when you do that. He knows everything that you've done and he loves you more than you could possibly imagine in spite of it. So my hope today is, yeah, that you would make some changes to cut some things out of your life that need to go. But more than that, I want you to bring something into your life. The unsurpassed, beautiful love of God. Last week, we said that addiction is an intimacy disorder. Remember that? I, I can't find relationships, so I go to a substance to numb the pain. But what happens when that numbing stops, the pain is still there, right? The pain still rises. So let the love of God be a balm to your wounds today. Can we do that? And can we be gracious to each other in the church? Men and women created in the image of God with dignity, can we be gracious to each other? Can we help each other in a broken world that is drowning? And some of us are drowning in too. Can we be a city on a hill, rapid city on a hill, a lighthouse, a refuge to those that are hurting, not shaming anybody out the door. We welcome everyone in. Guess what? If we let you in, we'll let them in too. <laughs> if you let me in, then we're all welcome here. We're a mess, but God loves a beautiful mess. And God is good. So let's just pray this morning. God, thank you for the way that you love us, man. You, you just in the time of worship this morning, it was so real. We felt so close to you. God, I pray right in this moment, God, that you would just hug us, that you would just hold us, that you would just allow every single person in this room to rest in who you are and how much you love us. There's a brokenness that can come from the lust of our hearts. And God, we just acknowledge that today. And um, Lord, we just lay it down just like anything else. And so God, let there be something radical in us that changes the way that we respond, a radical mutilation of those moments and those opportunities, a radical decision to get that stuff out of my reach and out of my life for anybody in this room that struggles. And Lord, help us as a church, as a body, as brothers and sisters to love each other and hold on to each other and be real with each other to hold each other accountable and to give each other a, a tough kind of love that says, you know what? I see what you're struggling with and it's messy, yeah, but I'm here with you all the way through it and I love you. Help us. God, we offer it up. We offer our sons and daughters that are growing up in a generation that's just immersed in, a, in, in this tech, tech, technical availability. But you know what I see? This, we, we were talking about this at men's retreat. When the sexual revolution came, what came right after it? The Jesus movement. So Father, <laughs> just do it again. Do, it probably won't look the same, probably won't be long haired hippie, you know, in the church singing Jesus songs, but move again on your people. God, even as we were talking about the gifts of the spirit as we we're wrapping up men's retreat, and you move so mightily, thank you God for that time together where we see a, a culture that is devoid of a lot of those fruits, God, 
I pray, Lord, that the same thing would happen, that there would be a turning and a revival generation that would stir up. There's either gonna be a revival in, the, a revival in the streets or riots. So let the church rise up and sing those revival songs. God, we thank you for your freedom, for your gift of love this morning. The last thing I wanna do, and church, you can pray and agree with me right now, is, is that if you haven't said yes to Jesus or you'd like to resurrender your life to Jesus this morning, we wanna give you that opportunity and then we're gonna close. This isn't, again, this isn't a shame thing. I'm not gonna embarrass anybody this morning. I just wanna give you an opportunity to step into freedom, to step into a rescue. He has come to pull you out and be with you and be faithful. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is your strength when you're weak. So if that's you this morning, without belaboring the point, with nobody looking around, every head bowed and every eye closed, just raise your hand and I wanna pray with you this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, let's pray this together. Got several hands raised this morning. All together, Father God, I give you my life. I surrender all that I am to you. All that I am. I radically cut off every part of me that leads me a different direction. I wanna be set apart. I wanna be holy. I wanna be used for your kingdom. Thank you for the freedom that you bought for me at the cross. I lay my stuff down and I follow hard after you. I love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen, amen. Let's celebrate this morning. Woo! Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So guys, um, ladies, I don't want to pretend like this is just a, a, a man thing. Um, you know, part of, part of working through tough stuff is being real with somebody. Going deep with somebody and being real in relationship with somebody. So, um, we're going to have an altar team up here in just a minute to pray. Um, you know, I don't know necessarily. God might ask you to come up and speak with them and ask you to be, um, be prayed over, but it might be more something like a, a conversation that you have with somebody that you know loves you and loves God. But don't try to do this alone. Don't try to do this alone. We. You, you need a fight club. You need men, you need some men around you that'll hold you up and lift you up and walk shoulder to shoulder and carry burdens with you. Ladies, you need the same thing. So as you respond today, whether you're online or you're coming up here to be prayed for, um, as we uh, close out this time today, I just wanna encourage you, you're not alone. There's some next steps that you can take. Um, you can go to our website, mydestiny.family forward slash next. Um, to give you some opportunities and some directions that you can take. Um, and we just don't, we want you to know that you're not alone. 